0: How's it going, everyone? Today is our, uh, we have an incredible guest here today. We have Jay Dobbins, who is a former retired ATF agent for 27 years, the author of two incredible books, Uh, football coach, uh, speaker, just an incredible story. And Jay, I am so fortunate to have you on here this morning.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome to your audience. Hopefully we'll say something uh, interesting that will entertain them.
0: Well, if anyone reads these books, I don't think you'll have to say much because re- these books and your story read like a, one of those movies you watch in Hollywood where you're kind of like, oh, this is Sons of Anarchy, but you really lived it. And for you to put yourself out there like this, it must have been cathartic, but in a sense, was it a burden off your shoulders putting these, the first book out?
1: Well, you know, I think in, in writing those books, and like I'm not a professional writer by any means, um, but I did know that there was uh, a few simple things that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to be transparent. Um, my stories are not hero stories. Uh, there's there's uh, elements of achievement in them. There's elements of success, but there's also a lot of elements of failure and mistakes and I didn't want to hide those. I didn't want to try to gloss who I am or who, what my career was because I think that's counterfeit. That's you know what I wanted to just be true. People can read the books and then they can decide how they feel about me, plus or minus, you know, positive or negative. Um, but I wanted to when I put my name on them, I wanted them to be authentic. So,
0: which is the irony of that is that you you part of your job was infiltrating. The Hell's Angels and other organizations, the undercover work where you have to create this false type of person's lifestyle, yet deep down, you're doing it for the right reasons. And for you, it's just it's just awesome stuff, Jay.
1: Well, I think that's one of the challenges for anybody who works in covert operations, whether there be uh, you know in the law enforcement side, uh, on the military side, is that it, it, it's it's a struggle. It's it's difficult and it's uh, emotionally and, and spiritually and intellectually all those things challenging to pretend to be someone you're not and then have to convince people who are, you know, violent and and not welcoming to anybody to sell them that you're that, that you're someone, you know, sell them on a false persona, sell them that you're someone that you're not and then to do it over time.
0: I was, uh, I was glad in your books you keep a glossary of different keywords and stuff because I'm not – I mean I'm familiar with certain motorcycle people, different bikes and stuff, but the glossary really helped. And so I guess one of my questions was obviously names you, – you, you really put out a point there that, hey, these people are real people, so-and-so. But was there ever any issue on your end in terms of once you retire from the ATF? certain aspects of the case you can or cannot write about? Because there's no, nothing really redacted in these books.
1: No, you know what? I actually got in trouble with uh, the government uh, for the No Angel book because, um, the, A, they didn't want me telling the story. They didn't want me telling it without their permission or approval. Um, but there's nothing hidden in there. There's there's no secrets to it. There's like, I told the story as best I could tell it as authentically and truthfully as I could tell it. I referred to uh, recordings and reports and all those things. I didn't hide anything, but there was nothing to be hidden. There was no, like, I didn't reveal any um, specific tradecraft, any like nuanced, small, micro details that someone who's reading it from the from the opposing side is gonna say, oh, that's how they do this. It's, it's, it's not rocket science, man. We weren't trying to land on Mars or operate on somebody's brain. This is just cop work, it's cop land.
0: So I'll kind of back it up a little bit. Right now, you started your career, not career, but you as a football player, as a star um, football player, and now here you are as a football coach. Is that full circle for you? Zach, is that, is that, you, could you imagine when you were an athlete back in the day to now as a coach that these 27, 30 years in between there would lead you to where you are today as a coach?
1: You know, I think that all the elements and events and aspects of my life have brought me to this place, to this time, with this team, with this group of kids to coach them. And I think like, I'm, I'm not a great football coach. I'm not an amazing football coach by any means. But what I do is I try to take all these life's events um, and more importantly, the mistakes and the failures that I experienced and translate those through football to my kids to, you know, like for our football program, I always say, I, I don't run a football program. I run a leadership program whose lessons are taught through football. So I take all these things that I did wrong and try to uh, instill them in these young men so that they don't have to make the same mistakes and go through the same heartache that I did.
0: Have you found this difficult during COVID with social distancing and stuff that, what, how has that affected your job besides the actual physical part of it?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, It's super difficult, obviously, for everybody. But when you're trying to uh, run a football team with a bunch of kids, basically, and you have all these COVID protocols, you know, like when our season began and before we started to figure out how to play football games, our football practices looked like a massive CrossFit class. They didn't even look like a football practice, you know, because we're just trying to figure out the
0: mechanics of how all this works. Right, very, very fascinating. I can imagine kids like they want to get out there and hit each other and have fun on the field and stuff. But the mental aspect of it, just for you as an adult, though, but as these for these kids, it's gotta be daunting for them to have a leader up there that's willing to put the time to like kind of work with them through this all.
1: Well, I think that's you know one of the aspects we talked about is leadership. Is like, okay, look, we've got this virus out there. We have to take it serious. We have to uh, adhere to all these protocols to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves, face, to keep ourselves safe. But like, are we going to spend our entire life in fear of this? Are we going to be afraid of it? Are we going to like go find a corner to hide in? Are we going to fight back? Are we going to do something about it? Are we going to be proactive in overcoming this? Or are we just going to sit there and wait for everybody to tell us how to act, what to do, what to think? how to respond, like get out in front of it, be aggressive, stand up to it. It's all these things in life that we encounter, man, that's still football, standing up to the adversary, do something about it. man. you know, uh, fight back,
0: be resilient, overcome. Right. No, it's great to hear that. Now, if you have your kids or the, some of these athletes are, say you get brought to a school to give a more visual speech and one of these kids comes up to you or your own kid is like, man, coach, I would I really want to do this ATF life. I really love law enforcement. Are you t-? I mean, obviously, they could read your book and they probably know who you are based on their parents and stuff. But is there a fear on your part where it's like you don't want that to fall into your same pratfalls or issues you had? Or is there a fear where you're kind of like, man, I don't, like, follow your heart, but make sure you pick make the right choice here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But there's there's elements to my career, especially the end of my career, that didn't work out the way I'd wanted to, the right. way I'd hoped that they would. I had some struggles at the end of my career, um, but even with all those hardships, I would I would recommend anybody to get into into law enforcement or to get into ATF. Um, I would not change one thing. Even the hard times, even the even the bad things, even the mistakes, I wouldn't change any of that. The upside and the things I gained and the experiences I had and the people that I was privileged to work with and work alongside were well worth any problems I might have had. I would never trade the problems off in exchange for not having all those other great things and amazing experiences I had.
0: Right. The idea right now after the george floyd incident um, there became this movement for to fund the police now if you were still law enforcement at the time what are some how are you dealing with that mentally yourself well it's it's never been
1: ever in our history harder to be a lawman or a law woman than it is today right that, it's never been harder never been more difficult um and, and just in general, like in society, culture, I truly think that God is weeping when he sees how we treat each other. Right. When we see when we, how we treat each other as human beings, when he sees how um, our law enforcement community is viewed and treated and looked at, when 99.9% of the people that put on a badge and put a gun on their hip are truly out there to try to help people and protect people and keep people safe. And the fact that they've been demonized for the profession they chose, which is a moral, ethical, uh, high integrity profession, it's it's heartbreaking. Because I, I, I know and have worked with thousands and thousands of lawmen, and, and they just want to take care of people. Um, and like any element of society, are there some that skew off? Are there some bad apples? Absolutely. No one dislikes or disapproves of bad policing more than good policemen.
0: Right. Yeah, it's been tough. I I, I used to be former Secret Service, and uh, but my friends, a couple of my friends are counter snipers out there now with a couple of other current president's detail, and. We laugh about stuff like, oh, I remember training back then. It's like, but then they should tell me what's going on now. It's like, man, we were never trained for that. Like to how to deal with this built-in manufactured hatred towards someone that wears the badge. And it's like you see you said it, but like it's very disheartening that, man, I love what I did, but would I want to do that now during the current climate? And I, I honestly don't know. And it's it's man, that makes me sad.
1: Well, when you see um when you see lawmen out there trying to hold the line, trying to protect the public, trying to protect property, who are getting spit on, getting things thrown at them—bricks, rocks, frozen water bottles, uh, people screaming in their face—I I, I don't have any—I don't have any word for it. I, th- I think that the demonization of law enforcement is wrong. It's unfair. Um, But I have even more admiration for those that keep doing it in spite of all those things. There's men and women all over the country who their alarm clock goes off in the morning and they put their feet on the ground and they get up and they pour a bowl of Cheerios and have some coffee and pat their kids on the head and kiss their wife goodbye, not knowing whether they're ever going to to come home, whether they're going to have the chance to come home. And they know they're going to be hated and despised every day they put that badge on, every day they put that uniform on. They're going to be second-guessed and critiqued. And in most situations, in many situations, regardless of what they do, they're not going to be allowed to get it right. And they still go. They still go to work. They still do their best in spite of all those things.
0: Right. One of the things, obviously, in law enforcement, as you would know, is the importance of teamwork. But as you transition to the undercover aspect of it, through the ATF, that becomes more reliant on kind of your street savvy sw- skills and the team you can kind of work with. How difficult is it to not be able to utilize that full team, whether it's the patrol guy, the person back in the office? Like you're, when you're living on this job, this undercover work, it's, it's all you. Is that, that must be scary once you first kind of get into that.
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of aspects to undercover work. Um, it is, it's undercover work and undercover operations are really nothing more than a tool in the investigator's toolbox. Right. There's so many different techniques and aspects to investigate a case. Undercover work is one of those. Um, undercover operators are typically viewed as the black sheep because they don't fit the norm. They don't look like the other cops. They don't act like the other cops. Their assignments are different than the other cops. Um, but it's 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 nothing more than an aspect that is used to investigate a case. The issue with it and, and where it causes uh, especially concern for executives and management is that Unlike a wiretap, unlike surveillance, unlike historical cases, you're taking a living, breathing asset and inserting them as close to the enemy as you can. And, and there's a, a lack of control at times with that. Undercover is very fluid. It's really hard to always plan it and, and set up operational plans. Things very rarely go exactly as we intend them to, intended them to. And so that makes people uncomfortable, especially people who are in supervision who want to control everything, who want to have everything fit inside its box. Um, and then when you're putting a living, breathing person that's on your team that you care about and you're inserting them into harm's way, man, it's, it, you know, it's not for everybody. That That's for sure. It's not for everybody on both sides. It's not for everybody to be an operator. It's not for everybody to supervise those operations. Right.
0: At the onset of Black Biscuit, you, uh, it, uh, it already is chaos with the Hells Angels and the Mongols. Now, when you get inserted into that, it's a time a war or whatever you want to describe that as. You're jumping into something where these are two groups that really hate each other. And was there? It's it just the whole. I mean, it's very fascinating this whole how you got into this, but the creation of when you hit, shoot that undercover the, the cop that's dressed as a Mongol in the ditch the picture of the book is very it's powerful because i'm thinking this is actually or this has really happened in the sense that this does happen people get killed shot and stuff like that but for you to create this kind of backstory i would be like man what if they find out i'm full of shit like how do you how long did it take for you to concoct kind of getting you infiltrated that deep that quick
1: Well, like with aspects to us bluffing the murder of the Mongol, right? right? That, that actual event, that operation within the operation, it it was built over a lifetime. It was built over a career. It wasn't something that we invented. And on a Monday said, Hey, let's go pretend like we killed somebody and we'll sell it to them on Friday. When, When I got into that Hell's Angels assignment, I already had 15 years of undercover experience behind me. And I had bought everything on the street from Saturday night specials to shoulder launched missiles. I had bought everything from uh, dime bags in the park to cartel level cocaine loads, Um, from PVC homemade pipe bombs that some tweaker was making in his garage or in his mom's basement up to servo activated remote controlled C4 devices. I had done home invasions and murder for hires. And so, you know, over the course of my career, I had 500-plus undercover operations under my belt. So when we bluffed this this murder, it was a culmination of all these experiences and trying to make it real and trying to make it believable and then trying to figure out, like, all the questions in advance. Get out in front of, like... What are we going to be asked? How are we going to explain it? What's the backstory? So all of that went into that operation in order to bluff a murder, convince murderers that we had actually killed someone on their behalf and then let it have the legs that when they started researching it and questioning it and, 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 and their intellect and their paranoia, not wanting to believe it, still being able to overcome all those things and make it real in their eyes.
0: Incredible. And I'm not sure if you can answer this or if I'm going to frame the question right, but you're undercover ATF. What are the chances that you don't know or your agency doesn't know that, Hey, the DEA is going after the same group, another, not black biscuit, but another version of this, or FBI has a guy in or whoever. And what, is it, I mean, obviously there's issues involved, but, does ego come into play there? If you guys are all trying, I mean, obviously, I would think that for the greater good of the cause, you guys want to take care of the problem, get the guns off the street, the drugs. I get it. But at what point does your ego—not yours, but the agent's ego—get in the way of helping the- getting rid of this co- helping the situation? Well, you know, in
1: in in street operations, we do our best to deconflict. Uh, opposing operations or or interagency operations because because of our jurisdictions a single target may have different agencies that are are looking at at that person so how do we deconflict those that's the key to everything the key to everything we do not just in in law enforcement just not in operations but in life is communication like how well and how openly do you communicate it's 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 how we solve problems So, you know, like there's an example that uh, like from the Hells Angels case that I think was uh, an excellent example of that. Uh, There was a point in time where there were some members of the Hells Angels that had decided they wanted to kill me and my undercover partners. I I wasn't aware of that plan, but DEA had an informant into the Hells Angels, who was unaware that we were undercover operators. They were two independent cases going on. Well, that informant reports to his DEA handler, hey, some guys just left here, and they're going to kill these cats down in South Phoenix. I thought you should know. Well, that DEA case agent contacts the ATF case agent. The ATF case agent contacts me and says, man, you got to get out of your house. There's a hit squad coming for you dudes. So that that is an element of deconfliction where communication literally saved lives that day.
0: Right. Very fascinating. One of the things the thieves I got in your your books is that not all good people are good, not all bad people are bad, and it kind it, it kind of hit me because it's like I'm familiar with the Hell's Angels, Sonny, guys like this, Chuck Zito, you know, people that are out there just because you know who they are. But you hear some of the people, it's like. I don't know if I sympathize with the hell's people like that, but like I don't, I, I know what the people say, the stories, the cases. Like these are these on paper. Like these, a lot of these people are bad, bad guy killers. I get it, but and then on the same side, you look at some law enforcement people, especially with what you went through with the framing, the arson, like craziness like that, where like you the, the blurred line between good and bad. You have to operate in that area, and not a lot of people could do that. And so I don't know if you can kind of touch upon that, but I love how you bring that up.
1: Well, you know, I'll just – I'll insert myself in it, and and I'll put myself in the center of that question. I'm not as good or as bad as people think, and I think that applies across the board. Um, I I met plenty of really violent people who did some – committed some despicable crimes did some terrible things who i saw elements of their life in an undercover role that like i liked them i enjoyed being around them um, so it's it, you know it goes both ways and we're, we're we're not always consistently who people think we are um and, and the same thing goes for cops the same thing goes for me like I did some good things, but man, I, I've done bad things too. Like I've made mistakes in my life. I say this all the time, publicly and privately. I have made a million mistakes and done a million things wrong in my life. Now fortunate for, for me, God and my family have given me a million and one second chances to try to fix it, to try to recover from it. Um, and that, that's, that's the blessing. That's, for me, is that all these things I've done wrong and all these mistakes I've made, the people in my life and God have always given me a second chance a million times over to try to fix them.
0: One of the interesting things is that I, I've, I've met Chuck Zito a bunch of times, never had an issue with him. I've seen him out there with clients doing this thing. But people like Chuck Zito, and I, I can't think of the guy from the mafia that used to be a enforcer that got out. Now, when you leave organizations like the mafia or – Hells Angels, whatever group like that. Is there a, like, how do you, how do you just be like, I did all this for now, I'm getting out? Like, how do you, and I'm not sure you can really talk about it, but like, how do you get out of that lifestyle and just start doing Hollywood or go introduce doing it? Now now you're working a a adorable business nine to five. Now, how how does that work?
1: I I don't think you ever fully escape that lifestyle. Okay. Um, I think you might change your path, change your direction, change your affiliation a little bit. But if you've spent 20, 30 years as a part of a criminal organization, and then one day you wake up and call time out and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Do you really change? Does your mentality really change? And let's like flip the switch on that. I think it goes both ways. If you spend 20 or 30 years as a cop and then you retire, do you all of a sudden stop being a cop? You all of a sudden stop thinking like a cop, stop acting like you, you don't.
0: Right. It's for you because you obviously are, were a cop, are a cop, but you're living that lifestyle. So you had to literally keep that switch right in the middle of the whole time. I can could, I could imagine coming on or off any second. You have to operate at such a high level. It's awesome.
1: Well, you know, I'll give you a story, which I think is a good reflection of that. Um, During the Hells Angels case, um, I was gone for an extended period of time from home. I came home and my wife told me, you cannot walk in this door after being gone for months at a time and and act like the alpha dog at this house and treat me and our kids like we're street people. Like that's not going to fly. And then my self-defense of that was, man, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. I have to be on because people that treat what I do for a living, people that treat it as a hobby, they end up dead. I have to be on all the time. And then her response back to me was, well, if you're a light switch, you better install a dimmer when you come to this house. And if you can't tone down that attitude around me and the kids, don't come back.
0: Wow. It's so – it brings up a fascinating part of your life where as you're undercover, you still have to maintain that family life in the sense of you do have a family back in your real life. And when you're working undercover, does that, that must weigh on you because your actions as undercover, no matter what could come back and affect your family life. So how do you, for you, again, for you to be locked into the undercover world, while they take your real life it's got to be it, it has to weigh on you every day when you're undercover
1: well absolutely and, and that question i mean you're spot on with that question ultimately i mean it did real time affect my family and then it did after the fact affected my family um one of my regrets probably my biggest regret probably my biggest shame over the course of my career was I complain about being abandoned and betrayed at the end of my career by my agency. Right. I, during the course of my career, I abandoned and betrayed my own family. I put my job and what I was doing in front of my wife, in front of my kids. And I had justified it to myself. And I pushed them aside and I realized after the fact, like now looking back on the on how I acted and the things I did from a 30,000 foot view with a clearer mind, I realized the people that loved me the most, the people that supported me the most, the people that were the most loyal to me are the ones that I treated the worst. And I, I carry that with me. I, I, I'm ashamed of that. Um, I regret that. I spend every day now trying to fix that um, and make up for that. But th- there's no denying that like, I'm upset that ATF, you know, abandoned and betrayed me. I abandoned and betrayed my own family. It comes back around, man. That was whatever you believe in. If you believe in karma, that
0: was karma. Right. It's a vicious circle that, uh, you unfortunately are, seems like you're at both ends of it. And, uh, just fascinating. And that whole arson situation where it's like you get out and whatever the they start kind of, I'm not sure uh, the reasoning why they would kind of declassify information on your part, addresses and stuff like that. And but when they do that, and you said you said earlier, like you're never out of it. And so when these people start realizing who you really are. Do you kind of, like, is that the first time you question, like, your agency going, what are you doing? Like, this is, just because I'm out of this aspect of this case, this stuff is still going on, and I'm still part of that world in these people's eyes.
1: It was, it was heartbreaking for me on a personal level because I had given my life, my blood, sweat, and tears to the agency, trying to, trying to do the, handle the agency's business, you know, as best I could. And I had done that my entire adult life. So when the Hells Angels case ends and then my true identity is exposed, like, man, the threats, the death threats started flooding in. The Hells Angels had uh, issued a contract on me. Uh, The Aryan Brotherhood had picked up the contract. The MS-13 had picked up the contract. Uh, There were threats to uh, kidnap and torture my kids. There 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 were threats to videotape the, the kidnapping and torture of my wife. Um, in the summer of 2008, my house was burned to the ground and my agency didn't care. They didn't react. And they. I, I think that they were frozen as much as they just didn't know what to do. I had, I had executives at ATF saying, dude, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to start the stop of this. You're on your own, dude. They told me to my
0: face, you're on your own. Jeez. It's just just crazy that it would come to that, especially after your years of service. Events, and again, another thing part of your book, like you're in the middle of the law force, events like the Rodney King incidents or Columbine or Oklahoma City bombing, These these events that everyone know someone of or just was part of this of the media taking all this information in real time. What do you, At what point did you become dumb to incidents like this? And how did it change your kind of your psyche moving forward? Well, I'll tell you, you know, um,
1: you mentioned, you know, I, I responded to the uh, L.A. riots after the Rodney King decision. Um, I, I worked uh, some cases that were interrelated to the uh, 9-11 uh, terrorist bombings. Um, I re- I resp- I reacted uh, post event to the uh, Branch Davidian ATF Waco events where we had several agents murdered and a you know dozens of other chewed up. But the one that really the one that really got me was reacting to the Columbine high school shooting, which was. Not the first high school shooting, the first school shooting that we'd experienced, but the first massive one, like on that scale, there's been more, there's been others. Um, But like walking through that cafeteria and walking through that library and seeing the bodies of these kids, like with with blood pools around them and knowing that those kids showed up to school that day to do all the things that kids do when they go to high school. They were just going to go to class, hang out with their friends. After school, they were going to go to their clubs or their sports teams, practice, all those things, and being trapped inside that school. You know, they were literally sheep trapped in that school by wolves that were armed with assault weapons and pistols and bombs. And when I look back at that event, the thing that's really burned into my brain is that there were backpacks, like book bags, scattered everywhere. Like these kids were shucking off their books just in a panic to try to escape their own school. Right. That that event and seeing and smelling and all the things that come with investigating a case like that, literally my DNA changed at that point. And I started becoming an angry investigator. I I I I wasn't just showing up to work to do my job and investigate a case. I was investigating cases with a chip on my shoulder because that was it my DNA changed that
0: day. Now, as a football coach, I imagine every day you go to I mean, these could have been your kids. You coach and stuff. And so you had to you must still kind of have those kind of not flashbacks, but is there like a PTSD about where it's like, hey, like I as a if I'm a coach here, like what could I do to help these kids if this happens again? Or has that ever run through your mind?
1: Well, I'll tell you what my professional experience is, like how they might translate now into coaching high school football that maybe other coaches, other very good coaches, maybe don't consider is from my first day coaching. I've been I've been coaching for a long time. I've been coaching for 15 years. Um but from the very first day, one of my considerations is, what do I do and how will I react if some adversary approaches my team, comes on my campus? Um, like, like, I've thought about what I'm going to do in that situation. How many, how many coaches consider that? How many teachers consider that? On the other side, how many should? How many of them have had the experiences I have? So, like, I have the, um, if nothing else, the advantage of having experienced those things to try to think through if that situation, if someone confronts my team, if someone comes on my campus with bad intentions, what am I going to do? How am I going to react to it?
0: Right. Recently, Dave Chappelle put on a comedy special, and – he talked about how his son has to go to school and take um, training where it's like, Hey, if there's a bomb threat, this is, you do this excuse. Or if there's a shooting, you do this. And yes, there are some humorous parts to it, but the underlying issue is that we live in a world now where this is necessary. The bad guys are going to keep me bad guys. And so for you to be, have that forward thinking that, Hey, yes, I get it. I agree with you. I don't think I'm so bad. We have to do this training, but if it does happen, let's be ahead of the game. If you to do that, that's, that says a lot.
1: Well, I think it's um, unfortunately the world that we live in right. and putting your hand in the sand or being naive enough to think, well, that's never going to happen to me. That's never going to happen at my school. That's never going to happen to my kids. There are hundreds and hundreds of families who have, kids impacted by these events who thought it was never going to happen to them. It was never going to happen to their kids. And then when it's happening now, it's too late. It's too late to think about what you're going to do about it. You have to think about those things in advance. You have to have plan for them. Right
0: now I do want to, I want to step back your first week out of the job. Uh, you get shot. For all intents and purposes, you could have died. You should have died. You could have died. And the thing that really made me kind of – I mean, obviously, I respect you. Yeah, but the bit where they're like, hey, you you want to turn down your retirement. And right there, it's like this is a man that anyone else would be like, I'll take retirement. Fuck, I serve. Like, I'm out. But for you to recover, have that cool, unique experience with that doctor, and then – and live the life you do undercover with the ATF and everything. It's, it's a testament to your will to survive. Now, is that something you've always had? Or is this because you wanted to make a difference and that kind of was your fire to, to survive, recover, and continue doing what you love?
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you, um, there's probably a couple answers to that. I grew up in a blue-collar family. Right. My dad was a carpenter. My dad pounded nails his entire life until he couldn't pound nails anymore. My mom was a house cleaner. My mom scrubbed people's toilets for a living that didn't want to scrub their own toilet. Um, I had been raised in a work first, play second mentality. Um, Handle your business before you engage in the pleasure side of life. Um, So when I got shot, you know, I got hired on a Monday. I raised my hand and got sworn in on a Monday. Four days later on a Thursday, I was I had a bullet that went through my chest, it went in my back, it passed through my lung, it narrowly missed my heart, it exited my chest. And I was laying in the dirt and grime and dog shit of a trailer park, bleeding to death. There was a huge pool of blood growing around me. Um, Like blood was squirting out of my chest like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. Four days on the job, you know? And I tell people all the time, After four days, I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. (laughs) Free, right? I wasn't going to get paid for another two weeks. So, you know, I get to the hospital and survive that. I'm at the hospital and all the liability attorneys are lining up. They all want my case. And they were telling me, hey, kid, you know what a million dollars looks like? How about five million dollars? Like, I can get you that. You are not yet trained for this. You are not yet prepared for this. You were put in a situation that the government has created a huge liability for themselves. They want you and your story to just go away. They want to write a check and pretend like this never happened. Tell me how many zeros you want on that check and I'll go get it for you. And this is generational type money. We can get you money that you'll never have to work another day in your life. Neither will your family, or or your kids, or their kids, if you handle this correctly. And all I could think of was to get out. Like, no, no cop, no, no one ever takes a badge and a gun under the premise that they're someday or somehow going to get rich. Right. None of them do. They take them for all these other reasons. You know, to serve and protect. Like, really, for me, all I wanted to do was to heal, get healthy, come back to work, and try again and see if I could do it right.
0: Just, just incredible. Yeah, that survival. It's, it, it really puts in perspective And it kind of, for you to go through that, that 27 years later, I'm, I now I can retire. It's like the will to live. It's just, it's just awesome, Jay.
1: You know, John, I'll tell you what, I have no regrets over that decision either. Um, I had ups and downs. I had high points in my career. I had low points in my career. I look back on, okay, now at this point, like 33 years ago is when I was shot. How would my life have been different 33 years ago had I taken that buyout, had I taken that money, and I don't even want to think about it because I am so happy with my life, in spite of my mistakes, in spite of the hardships. I'm so happy with with just the way everything has turned out. I would not change one thing. Even the bad stuff, even getting shot. If I had to do it all over again, I would still get shot. It was one of the best things that happened to me from all the things that happened after that.
0: Yeah, it's like that butterfly effect where if you change one thing, but think of the countless lives you did save undercover. That sure it was a detriment to your family back home, but think of the families you kept together or you made better because of your actions. And it's it, it, again, it's a very you lived a very fascinating life. You you probably just get
1: started. If I would have taken that buyout, my personal life probably would have been much more comfortable. But but in exchange for what? Like, like what did you change? What did you do? How did you improve anything? How did you make things better for anybody else? I, I wouldn't have had those opportunities.
0: Recently, I rewatched Dead of Thieves. And this, the reason why I reached out to you is because I was watching the movie. And I'm like, like I, I'm familiar with the actors, Gerard. Like, I know these guys have to do the proper tactical gut training for their roles, but there's a dialogue, there was a grittiness to that movie where I'm kind of like, there's gotta be someone here that was probably a dark cop or someone that did this type of work on set. And I start digging through, I find, I see your name, and I go down your rabbit hole, and here we are. So now is that something where you're kind of is that could that be fun for you where you become a film consultant? Or I imagine for you to kind of make sure, like, hey, this is filmed correctly, or that's not how undercover operation work. Or like, what is the fascination with, I guess, a two-part question. Shows like Sons of Anarchy, how does that help or hinder kind of like the undercover world? And for someone like you, when you go on movie sets, is that, is that cathartic for you, fun? Do you have flashbacks? And how does it work for you? Let me ask you something real
1: quick before I answer that. Is this like live live or do you edit this?
0: I edit this and it goes live in February.
1: Let me step off for just a second and I'll answer that question. Yes. Just hold tight for just a second.
0: Yep. If you guys haven't yet, definitely pick up this book. Uh, This is the sequel, prequel, Catching Hell. And uh, his first book, No Angel. Just incredible. Really great reads. And like he said at best, like you – the content you get from here, and it's easy to read. It's great. It's raw. It's authentic. Uh, there's some pictures in there um, that kind of help paint the picture more. So – but uh, yeah, this is just a – incredible books. I highly suggest you guys read them. Um, yeah, it just, again, it's incredible stuff. I apologize.
1: I had to step off for just a second, but I, but I, oh, I, I know what your question was. So if you just want me to pick up from that question, yeah, for I will. Sure. For
0: sure.
1: So, um, I was asked to consult on the Den of Thieves film on the law enforcement side and to help train those actors, um, in, into the actors are great mimics. That's, you know, that's what they do. That's what makes them who they are. Um, and they can look at someone and hear someone and watch someone and then repeat that very authentically. So for Denna Thieves, I mean, I literally spent years with Jerry Butler, like preparing him for that role. That, that, that his role as, as Big Nick in Denna Thieves was at least loosely based on me and my personality to some extent. So that's probably not a very flattering statement because if you've watched Den of thief, like big Nick is not a very likable guy. Um, right. He's, he's, he's over the edge. He's, he's pushed outside the edges of the envelope. Um, but in that process, like I took all these experiences that I had and then tried to translate them to that acting team. And my goal was, and I told them this, like every day we met every day, we worked together. I want people, I want cops who watch this film to say, man, those guys got it right. That is how we talk. That is how we act. That, it's, I wanted an authentic translation of our world. We've, we've all, for what, regardless of what it is, I don't care if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a school teacher, if you're a cop, if you're in the military, we all watch movies and we see when they get it wrong. And we're like man not like that it would never happen but like we don't say that we don't talk like that we don't do that my job was to um try to filter through some of that and just make it as real as i could and i thought those actors in den of thieves i thought they were spot on i thought they did an amazing job of taking uh our world the real world and and distilling it down and, and giving performances that were captured on film that were true to life.
0: Yeah. Everything they said, even when it came to the gearing up doing like the dry firing drills or their lingo or the, how they were together in public. And then that dinner scene with Gerard Butler's character, big Dick, where he's got that, that bravado and arrogance and whatever all side of the papers. But then the minute you have, he's crying in the car after seeing his daughter, like you kind of see that, man these are this is real cop stuff here they like have this it's just very like would you it's just a great hype. i'm so fortunate like to watch that movie and talk to you and be like now that, that would make sense cuz i think a little bit of all these characters are part of your life and uh, that's a cool thing to be part of you know like my
1: fingerprints on that film are not uh, the story itself you know the story is of these right uh, ex military uh, guys turned criminal that are planning to rob the Federal Reserve Bank. My fingerprints on that are the the performances of the cop characters in their everyday life and in their investigations, at, like trying to keep them authentic, um, trying to help them understand like who we really are and how we really speak to each other and how we really act, and so. If people saw that film and said, "Man, I'm not sure I like these dudes," but that was believable. That's probably the greatest compliment right. that I can receive because not everybody likes me either. <laughs> um, and I and I tried to I, I tried to uh, convey that to Jerry Butler and to the guys that played those cop characters that it's not a hero right. story. Like like at, at times the world and the public wants to treat us and 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 make us appear heroic, the reality of it is, is we're human. We're human beings. And all those aspects of our life come into play when we go to work. And like we don't always get it right. Um, But it's the mentality of at least trying to and pushing the envelope and being as aggressive as we can within the law and within policy And, and being flamboyant at times. That 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 is that's that's real life.
0: Right. And the fact that they're all flawed characters, and I know we talked about it earlier, but when you talk about not all good guys are good and all bad guys are bad, you kind of sympathize with these characters. And I think that's where that realness comes in because you can see the good and bad of all these characters, and half of them are murderers. And it that that's a testament to work like yourself where you can really put in the authentic part of what you guys do. So, for, so us as viewers can, yeah, it's a Hollywood movie, we can have fun, we can laugh, we can cry, whatever, but there's an the underlying thing that you're able to kind of put your stamp on that's badass.
1: Well, and I think it's also a testament to the writer-director, Christian Gutegas, who was like open to my thoughts and my suggestions as he was writing his script and as he was directing his film in that the good guys, you see aspects to them that aren't all that good. Right, the bad guys. You see aspects to those characters that
0: aren't all that bad. Right, and that's
1: real life. That's real.
0: Right. Yeah, especially when they're messing with the daughter or the daughter's boyfriend, and it's just like these guys are legit killers, and here they are doing something a, a normal father or whatever normal is would do to have fun with their daughter's boyfriend.
1: It's it. I I just thought that those that those personality aspects of characters on both sides of that equation, good guy, bad guy, were real, we're true to
0: life. Now, not sure if you could talk about this, but has there been anyone approaching you being like, hey, who's going to play Jay in a movie? Or are you just happy to kind of putting your stamp on different roles like that where it's like I can kind of put myself here with Big Dick or other characters like that?
1: Well, who ever in their career takes a badge and a gun and then thinks at some point, that the uh, events of their life and career are going to land them consulting on a film. No one, no one, no (laughs) one, no one never imagined it. Um, So I was uh, like hugely flattered to be asked to do that. Um, As a film consultant and with a small role in the film, I, I, I consulted with the actors the same way that I did the job. I did it the best I could every day. I went as hard as I could every day. I did everything I could to inspire the people around me to be amazing every day. So, you know, in the end, as this all shakes out, man, like, like who could have ever predicted that? Like, no, like, so you say like, who's going to play Jay in the movie, right? Like the no angel book has been, you know, in Hollywood and being looked at for a film production for 15, 16, 17 years. Right. The trying to get a movie made and having a movie made are man, the mechanics of that and the timing and the luck and all those things like really difficult to do Um, whether it ever gets made or doesn't get made. Man, just to be in a point where you did something professionally in your career that Hollywood's thinking about, like, how can we translate this into a film? I never expected that. Right. Every that that takes a step forward is uh, a frosting on the cake. It's a bonus that I never could have predicted or expected or anticipated.
0: Now, someone, do you get weird with someone's like, man, Jay, you're my hero? Like, for me, I remember reading old stories with Wyatt Herb and – Lawmen like Elliot Nash and guys like that. So I could, obviously, you read stories and you, you see what happened and you watch the movies. But for for reading your book, I'm like, man, this is like this is like my this is someone that grew up during my lifetime, or obviously you're old a little bit older. But like, you could be the wider for my generation, where this is a real lawman that did some crazy, insane stuff. Yeah, he might be flawed, but this is a guy that loved his job. So, is it weird for you when people like Bad Jay, you are my inspiration, you're my hero? Because again, the first day you sign the papers and raise your hand, do your pledge, you're not expecting that. So, it must be kind of—is it off-putting at first when you hear that? It's—it's
1: uh, it's flattering. I—I um, I mean, we—we all—all of us, just as human beings, like to hear kind words about ourselves. Right. My typical reaction is. If I'm your hero, raise your standards because you can do better. You can do better than me. Right. Um, it's typically my, re- my reaction, my response. You know, I'll tell you a little story and I think it's a, a very human story that that relates to that. Over the course of my career, my son, when I would come home from operations or when I'd be leaving for operations, my son would go out in the yard and, and pick up a stone and grab a little rock and give me a rock. And for years and years, I'd always felt like he had been giving me these good luck charms, like these these little, these little trinkets of, 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 of good luck. I kept every one of those stones. I kept one in my pocket at all times. I had them in my undercover car, the saddlebags of my motorcycles, in my undercover houses. I was handing those stones out to members of my task force saying, We are in the midst of all this turmoil and all this violence and all this treachery. And here we are, we're thriving and surviving. There's some kind of blessing on these stones that Jack has given me. So please keep one with you. So right before we're ready to uh, start the operation where we bluffed the murder, which was kind of the, the capstone of that investigation. I'm getting ready to leave. My son runs out in the yard and he says, dad, dad, don't leave yet. I got something for you. I know what he's got. He's going to get a stone. Right. And he comes up and he's like, I've been saving this one for you. And he gives me this little rock and it's shaped like a heart. And so I'm a 40 plus year old father trying to. Trying to have trying to calm an eight year old boy. And we're standing in front of my house and I'm getting ready to go implement this, this fake murder scheme. And he gives me this rock and I looked at it and I said, Jackie, I said, all these rocks you've given me over the years, all these good luck charms, they work. They work. The reason I'm here is because of you and because of your good luck charms. They work so good. I've given them to all my partners. And this little boy standing on my driveway no shirt, no shirt, no, no shoes, like tears start streaming down his cheeks. And he's like, dad, those weren't for good luck. And they were only for you. You should have never given them to anyone else. And I'm, I'm standing there and I, my brain turned off. For years, I thought this kid had been giving me good luck charms. And he's like, that's for you to put in your pocket. And every time you think someone's gonna hurt you or shoot you or stab you, I wanted you to put your hand in there and touch that. And that's like me being there to help you fight back. Wow. So when people say, you're a hero, then that's what I had done to my son. My job wasn't to go out and be King Kong undercover agent or super cop. My job was to raise good kids. And I had failed my kids in exchange for this job. So when people think that you're heroic or people think I'm heroic, like that is a real, true life story of, if nothing else, a flawed hero, a failed hero.
0: Right. Are you afraid? Do you, I mean? Obviously, you're in the public light when it comes to the, the coaching, and you go out speaking, and you write books, and you're out in Hollywood. And what? Are you always kind of in the back of your mind, like, oh, is this something could come up, or I could get stopped, or I could have to deal with a situation out here with my family in a restaurant.
1: Um, those situations have happened uh, the potential for them to continue to happen is real right. um, but my reaction is this if I let the threats if I let them scare me underground if i hide they won. then they win yeah. they've won they've altered my life they 've altered my lifestyle with threats and intimidation um, like i don't i don 't want to be Osama Bin Laden. I don't want to hide in a cave and wait for someone to shoot a rocket at me. I just, I live my life. I'm not looking for a problem. I don't want a problem. If right. I'm confronted, I will walk away from a problem or run away from a problem. If I have to, I like, that's not what I'm looking for. But if you corner me or if you corner my family, like I know how to resolve the problem. It's <laughs> not going to be good for any of us. Like, You want to confront me and not give me an escape? Or you want to confront my family and not give them an escape? We're all going to the hospital. It's going to be a bad day for everybody. You know, I keep a gun on my hip and I have God's hand on my shoulder. And between the two of them, we'll figure it out. Right.
0: Before I let you go, is there any charity work you do or anything out there where you kind of, I know you go out there and speak to law enforcement groups and stuff like that, but Are there any groups out there that you kind of are involved with in the sense where we, other followers and listeners can kind of support themselves?
1: Um, Yeah, there, you know, um, I'm involved in um, several organizations that like, try to support struggling lawmen, you know, police, suicide is become epidemic. Um, So I'm involved in some organizations that try to make a positive impact on law enforcement officers that, Um, have become so overwhelmed that they're, they're uh, thinking and and considering like really drastic traumatic solutions to escape those, those feelings. Um, I think that's super important for what we do to continue to serve the, uh, the lawman community. Um, I've been involved in some charities in Africa. I've actually gone over to Africa to help uh, uh, rescue orphans from, uh, the, the, the situations there are, are pretty dire for some of these kids, these orphaned kids and trying to like help them have a chance in life. Um, and then through my coaching, you know, it's not a charitable, charitable organization, but it is a way for me to take all these aspects of my life and try to help improve someone else's life um, and do the best I can. That's all. That's all we're really trying to do is that if we can somehow take our experiences and use those to touch somebody else's life, to make their life better, yeah, you that's know, pretty satisfying. It, that you We can be very satisfied with what we do and it doesn't have to have a dollar sign attached to it.
0: Right. Where else can someone find you? I mean, obviously your books on Amazon bookstores, do you have social media or anywhere like a website where people kind of reach out and share their thoughts or.
1: Um, I've, I closed all my social media. I used to have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and it became so nasty and so hateful that I just shut it all down because I was like, I am not allowing this outside negativity. I'm not volunteering that into my life. I don't need that in my life. I love um, that. But like to find me or to contact me is actually pretty simple. I have a website. It's just www.jdobbins.com. And it's one-stop shopping there. And there's an email there like you can contact me. And I respond to the emails, um, positive or negative. Um, And I get plenty that say, you know, some, (laughs) some pretty nasty things to me. Um, I respond to those too. Um, And I don't like, I don't respond to them pissed off. I understand that there's people don't like me. Um, I don't respond to them. I don't, I, I, I try to take the high road in all my responses.
0: I love that. Well, I want to thank you, Jay, for this. This was awesome that uh, you're a very motivating individual. And uh, if one, one thing people can get from this talk is that uh, it's okay to be flawed. Uh, stick, to your, stick to your morals and as best as you can and surround yourself with good people. And uh, we can all make a difference. And I want to thank you for this time, Jay.
1: Very kind. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars.
0: Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theAllyMars.com.
1: Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.
0: The podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast
1: producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana.